0: Is depression, in, on some level, funny?
1: It's, it's ludicrous more than funny. It, it, it's, it's ridiculous that you can't find your shoes. Uh, it's ridiculous that you can't remember who you started a letter to, and since you didn't use their name at the beginning, you don't know who you were writing, whom you were writing to. <laughs> Is there something I can take now?
0: It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. On this program, we talk with some of the top people in comedy about their experiences with clinical depression. A lot of what they say is similar to what non comedians say, to what you and I say, but comedians can often get it across in a sharper way, a way that cuts through the fog a bit more, and in a way that's funny. And yes, 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 it's okay to laugh at depression because it makes you feel better, because it makes the disease not as scary, and because it's funny. A very special guest on this episode, who I spoke to from a recording studio in East Hampton, Long Island, New York.
1: Okay, uh, Richard A. Cavett, uh, known as Dick Cavett, and I think I'm in East Hampton or part of it or uh, Springs or Akabonic Path or some part of the area that I was just lost in driving (laughs) here. Is that more than you need to know?
0: Dick Cavett's career goes back to writing for Jack Parr on the original Tonight Show in the early 1960s. He went on to host several versions of The Dick Cavett Show on different TV networks for decades, and he got all sorts of people to open up to him. Muhammad Ali. People like Howell Cosell, you know. (laughs)
1: Muhammad Ali is just the mere shell of the fighter he was 10 years ago. <laughs> Muhammad, you're not the same man as you were 15 years ago, is that right? Now you know that's a silly thing to say. <laughs> Ain't nobody the same as they were 15 years ago. If I were you, I'd reach up and mess up his hair. Yeah. No, I'm not
0: gonna... <laughs> I'm not gonna mess it up. I'm gonna pull it off. <laughs> the famously private Katharine Hepburn.
1: I feel awful about putting you through this whole thing because um, I know it uh, violates your principles in some sense. And I feel guilty about that. Which principle? Well, uh, I guess the principle of not making a ludicrous spectacle of yourself in public. <laughs> oh, my God. Pardon and, uh, me. <laughs> I, hope you're not, I hope you're not planning to do that. Is that anything what you're like looking that. forward to? That's it? what I kind of hope what I you're could liable to get.
0: <laughs> President Richard Nixon tried to take him down. These are Nixon's tapes from the Oval Office. Automatically you do We've we've complained bitterly about the, the well. That's Nixon talking with White House Chief of Staff H. R. Haldeman asking if they can screw Cavett in some way. I mean, you know you're doing something notable when Richard Nixon in recorded Oval Office conversations is actively trying to get you to screw you. In the midst of talking to all these amazing people and having Nixon plot against him, Dick Cavett had a secret depression. It all started when he had just left Nebraska for the Ivy League, 1954.
1: Well, I think the first one that would be considered a textbook genuine one was um, freshman year at Yale. And it was mysterious because I couldn't have been in more bliss than being there in my freshman year, having a wonderful time already being afraid it would end in four years. And uh, suddenly I didn't want to get out of bed. And if I got out, I didn't want to go to class. And all the lighting effects seemed to have been changed to a kind of medium gray. And I wanted to go home, which in, in fact was the last place I wanted to be. Nothing wrong with my home, but I was just thrilled at being at Yale with the Schubert Theater virtually across the street with a Broadway show on the way to New York every few weeks and um, the, the drama school there and, and the great classes and the thrilling professors who got standing ovations from jaded Yaleys. why did that suddenly all turn dim? Didn't give a damn about it.
0: Did this happen like when you woke up one morning or did it happen over the course of some weeks or what?
1: Uh, I, I think it sort of started out feeling a little tired one day, and then the next day feeling a little tireder in the same way, and then in a day or two thinking, this is worse all along. So I, one of the things you're supposed to do is turn yourself in, so to speak, or report it. I went to the Yale infirmary where a nice lady who seemed like a kind of friendly librarian uh, of, of a certain age, um, suggest that I walk more and use a oral B40 toothbrush. (laughs) So I was an expert hands.
0: Was there a term for, for what you were going through back then? I mean, I, it's obviously wasn't talked about as much as it is now. So was it a total
1: mystery (laughs) to you? Actually, there was a phrase like student letdown or something. Uh, apparently, it's common among freshmen in college. Nobody, I don't think, knew then or knows now exactly why. And I don't think I, I, I heard the word depression used, applied to it at all at that point. Just uh, you've got the freshman blues or luckily it didn't go deeper err. In the time I was at Yale, there was a suicide every year at Princeton. Um, none at Yale, but they, were, they are f- appallingly frequent among freshman college students. And that was in the days before all the fun of drugs were around, so I was probably lucky in that sense.
0: His depression lingered for a while after that, but for the most part, cleared up, abated, recessed. Cavett graduated from Yale and went out into the world. He tried stand-up, he worked as a store detective, and finally he broke into comedy as a writer and worked his way up and up and up to hosting The Dick Cavett Show. Dick says in his line of work he met a lot of people in the entertainment industry who had symptoms that we might now
1: recognize as depression. Poor old Judy Garland, who... Actually, she was on my almost my uh, first shows in the morning on ABC. She died a week later. She was great fun. She was... Uh, the show had been erased by the wise heads at ABC. Um, but I, some guy found a homemade copy of it, and she's just wonderful on it. And you would never think, looking at her on there, that she could ever have been depressed. And of course, you'd associate her with energy. Well, of course... She was neurotic and a drunk by that time, and she'd been neurotic always. Sad aspect of that, and this depressed actor or comedian will identify with this. I finished the show. I said goodbye to her. I walked a block to my office, did something, came back about a half hour later, and somebody came out and said, she's still here. We can't get her out of the dressing room. And it wasn't until some years later that I knew exactly what that was actors who are in a play and have depression but can function don't want the third act to come around they don't want to leave there they're in a setting they know maybe it's the living room of a southern mansion and they know everything that's going to happen in there because it's the play and i even heard an old actor once say i i slow down i find i slow down in the third act especially on tour because I don't want to go back to a cheap hotel room with a bottle of vodka on the dresser. Um, vodka, by the way, is just about the best thing you can take to deepen your depression. Al- alcohol, being a depressant of the central nervous system, boys and girls, uh, as we studied last term, will make you worse. But you'll feel better for a little while.
0: Sometimes Dick Cavett had experiences with famous people while he himself was experiencing a relapse of depression.
1: I went to the Wyndham Hotel on a day that I was to tape with a reasonably well-known guest, uh, Lord Olivier, as Sir Lawrence Olivier or Lord Olivier was at that time, and I was just—I didn't—I wanted to be under the rug, and I thought this is evil. Lawrence Olivier, I should be thrilled. I should be looking forward to this for weeks. He's in the next room upstairs where we're going to shoot. And I want to go home. And during the taping, I thought, Olivier and Joan Plowright are much too smart not to know that they're talking to a man whose brain is busted. I've been taking pauses of probably 20 seconds where three is a long time. I look at a cue card and I don't know what it means. And I never, ever wanted to look at that show. Some Somehow I got through it. Years later, you didn't know this was going to be a long chapter. Years later, uh, I hate name-dropping, Mr. Marlon Brando in his home in California heard that story, a man no stranger to depression. And he said, "What? how how'd it look when you looked at and I said, well, I, I've, God, I'm crazy. I'd never look at it. Do me a favor. Go home. Take a look at it. Well, because it was brand I did, about a week later. I looked fine. The pauses were not there. My eyes even sparkled a little. Whereas I sat there, a man sinking in mud and fog when doing it, And I called him and I said, what was that? And he said, I call an automatic pilot. Takes over for performers and sad people like us. (laughs) It was a miracle. It was a performance. It was acting. It was acting. It was performing. It was play acting, riding over it, as Noel Coward's favorite phrase, rising above it. Okay, knowing that, listen to this. This is Cabot and Olivier. What was the, the time, uh, Larry, which I was instructed to call you, uh, and I'm glad to, what was, the, what was the play you did where you were, I think maybe it was Richard Third, where you said to yourself, opening night, uh, you, you said you were still learning lines uh, the day before, and that this is just going to be one of the worst performances you've ever seen, or something like that. Um. Oh, I was, quite, there, yes, I was at the time. I, I was absolutely uh, confident mm. that it was an utter failure
0: Confidence and absolutely
1: no chance of success. So mm. I, I'd release all the tensions off me now because it doesn't make any difference at all. And I mm. could tell you how bad the notice is going to be. I hope there won't be boos at the end. There might be some kind of applause. I don't know. And uh, So I just went on just did it. And uh, I suppose that had a very relaxing effect on me, more than was usual. And uh, obviously it helped the performance no end. By expecting catastrophe, you you somehow prevented it. Yes. (laughs)
0: In that one story, you have Dick Cavett dealing with depression by having to act. He's talking to Marlon Brando, who has depression and is one of the greatest actors ever, and they're talking about acting. And it's all based on another talk with Laurence Olivier, one of the other greatest actors ever, who, it turns out...
1: Had a brutal attack of depression in mid-career, starring in a classic play. And it took the form of stage fright of all people. (laughs) Uh... he he could have to be pushed on stage for his entrance, literally, not the way literally is used these days. It, in fact, happened that way. Uh, And he also, in one long scene where he was alone on stage, uh, he had to put a fellow actor where he could see him in the wings or he would have fled the stage. So that's the curious twists and turns that depression Can take
0: As long as I had Dick Cavett on the line, I had to ask about one of his friends who happened to be one of the funniest and most mysterious figures of his day. Groucho Marx, leader of the Marx Brothers, who made some of the funniest movies ever. Please go watch Duck Soup. If you haven't seen it, I'm so jealous of you that you get to watch it for the first time. Groucho later hosted You Bet Your Life, one of the first TV game shows. I have to ask about Groucho Marx because you were... You were close with him, and when I think of the great comedians, he's he is one of the first names and visages to come to mind. Of course. And spending so much time talking with comedians about comedy, is he somebody who who dealt with depression as far as you know?
1: I was lucky enough to know Groucho in the full sense over years. Um and that's the one thing i wish i had talked with him about but yes he did uh he was very very sad it's you can't know in someone else's case if it crosses the line into technically real depression uh, you can be terribly deeply sad and not have depression of course he was melancholic then he was that and he talked about that and he there were, somebody said it was sad living two doors from him because he would, I realized uh, almost too late, that he was walking his dog back and forth past our house hoping to be invited in to dinner. Wow. Um, (laughs) uh, That's something when you think of the morrow of Groucho. Um, And he he was not lucky with his children. His daughter was drunk for 20 years, uh, Miriam, was still with us, fortunately and heroically, and, and would be first to admit all this, uh, and another daughter, I don't know what became of Melinda, who was a pretty little girl on his game show way back, um, and yeah, Groucho certainly undoubtedly had how deep, how long, how often, I don't know, but he would say, life's a pretty sad business, isn't it, sometimes? <laughs> If you, if you had it to do over, would you uh, do anything different? There were rumors that you once wanted to be other things besides a performer. I wanted to be a doctor at one time. You did? Yeah. Horse doctor. Right? No, really. I, I wanted over? to be a doctor, but that was before Medicare. I wouldn't do it now. In those days, the doctor could keep all the money he made. Now he yeah. keeps about 20%.
0: But what they've done, the doctors, they've raised the price of everything. Mm-hmm. So, if you go and get your leg sawed off,
1: it used to cost maybe $85. It'd be about 140 now. It's hardly worth it, is it? No, it's hardly worth it. <laughs> For $200, I'd seriously consider it. <laughs>
0: Dick said people often thought Groucho was putting on an act
1: when he wasn't. A guy came up with his wife in a restaurant in Hollywood and said, Groucho, say something insulting to my wife here. And Groucho said, uh, oh, With a wife like that, you should be able to think of your own insults, eh? And, of course, they laughed, which ruined his day. You <laughs> <laughs> can't even be cruel to people without... Wait till you hear what Groucho said. <laughs> he meant it. <laughs> yeah.
0: More with Dick Cavett in just a moment. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illness. Not just depression, but all kinds of mental illness. We enjoy having some laughs on this show, making a few jokes. It's a good way to deal with depression and knock down the power of the disease a little bit. But let's not kid ourselves. It's a serious disease. The good news is that people can and do recover. They can get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. It could be an awkward conversation, but makeitok.org is full of information you can use, like what to say and what not to say. Also stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, or other mental illnesses. Go to makeitok.org. You can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. All right, talking to Dick Cabot. Dick says that the Hollywood of many years ago was full of stars who exhibited all the signs of depression, a lot of them self medicated with booze, like Richard Burton, Liz Taylor. And they couldn't really be open about it; they couldn't share who they were with the world if they wanted
1: to keep their careers. There was such a stigma you don't want to be called a cuckoo. Um, you know you'll never get a job you don't let them find out you're falling off the desk park, desk chair practically at work uh, and putting your head down in your own lap and just trying to go to sleep uh or in, in less much less dramatic terms just not there having to labor to do a minimal decent job at work or um, or and getting back to the performers. They won't take a chance on you. They don't want you to crap out in the middle of your two-week run that they're paying you a lot of money for.
0: Dick Cavett was part of the entertainment industry, too. He was America's clever friend, the guy who actually said the thing everyone wishes they could say. He was political and funny before John Stewart. He could give a smirk that let you know he spotted the BS before Letterman ever had a show. And he could be just as silly as any current late night host named James or Jim or Jimmy. Here he is with Ray Charles singing poorly. Through all of this, Dick Cavett dragged his depression along. When in your career did it uh, did it come back, and when did you identify it as depression? When did you get that name to put with it?
1: It came back quite a few years later. When I, it wasn't there when I wrote for Jack Parr. It wasn't there when I wrote for Johnny Carson. Uh, and then I started doing my own show. And it came back... Um, During that time, and I was hospitalized for a time with it then, and then I knew a lot more about it and knew this was the real thing, and tried various uh, pills, various pills were tried on me, like Parnate and others. I don't even know if some of them are used anymore. They didn't do much, if anything. And what really ripped me out of it was ECT.
0: ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, formerly known as electroshock therapy. And it might be shocking to hear it spoken of positively, since it's often seen as an arcane method of treatment. It used to involve heavy doses of electricity pumped through the brain of a patient who was not under anesthesia. This sometimes resulted in memory loss and even broken bones. The more gentle approach that evolved later has lower doses of electricity, anesthesia, and much better results. It's used with patients who haven't responded to other treatments, and sometimes it just kind of clicks them back into feeling a lot better. And that was the case with Dick. It's a lot easier to talk about a problem once it is under control and you can look back on it. And eventually Dick Cavett started giving interviews about his struggles with depression, facing down that stigma, talking about it anyway. Now you were uh, it was very it was very rare to talk publicly about depression uh when you started doing so why did you decide to not keep it your your secret burden your your hidden black dog and and come out and and talk to the world about it
1: you know I don't really know the answer to that uh I a part of it might have been a sort of ego thing it's a dramatic subject. It'll be fun to present it as a as a talking <laughs> performer. Um uh, on Larry King, I think that's the first time I really spoke of it on television. I wasn't scared by the stigma of it, the horrible stigma of it still, that will cause stupid parents to tell a child who has it, What's the matter with you? Go out and play tennis and you'll be fine. And refuse to recognize it. Uh, it must be recognized. Uh, I, anyway, I, I thought. Um, also, maybe I, I can do some good because, God, it's around, people all around me come out of the closet, so to speak, saying they've suffered from it, and in some cases I knew, and some I never would have guessed.
0: Dick says another reason to be public about his depression: giving that performance all the time was exhausting.
1: The effort to act against it, to go to a goddamn cocktail party and try to talk to people. And that has two heads. Part of it helps a little because you are talking to someone. There's somebody there. Uh, It it, it maybe excites a few, uh, um, what do you call them, in the brain, Uh, the energy little deposit places of some sort, something. At the same time, it's agony. Uh, and I just thought, I'll, I'll go on Larry King. And actually, I went on once, maybe twice, once with Jane Pauley, a, a, a fellow club member in the Big D world. And I said something on that show that I didn't even remember saying until five or six people afterwards, and some still will say, I'll never forget that thing you said about depression. These are suffered. You said that it is so bad and so demobilizing and freezes you so that if you tell me there's a magic wand over there on the table six feet away that will cure you, it's too much trouble to get up and try it. You just couldn't pick it up, and it probably wouldn't work for you anyway. And people said that magic wand thing... (laughs) said it for them in a way they had realized but hadn't but it really hit home um there's a reward in talking about it a kind of selfish one it's when people uh, come up to you and say mr Cabot i'm just a fan of yours but I, I just want you to know that you saved my father's life and i when it first started it's happened a lot first happened i thought did i you know, pull him in from a falling overboard somewhere in my past. No, no, but when he saw you talking about depression, he decided that's it. If it can happen to Cabot, I don't need to be ashamed of it myself. Which may be, in fact, the uh, only good use of celebrity I can think of, that in fundraising. <laughs> right. The, the parking <laughs> isn't bad, I'm sure.
0: Uh, were you ever close to suicide?
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, while I was in the hospital with it, um, they said we're going to take the patients for a walk on Wednesday from a unit that no longer exists at Columbia Presbyterian. It was called Neuro 12, <laughs> euphemistically, and the depressives were in there. And they were going to take everyone for a walk, and I thought, oh, that would be nice. And it's, uh, I can run pretty fast, and I can get away from the group and just go over the rail of the George Washington Bridge uh, without any trouble.
0: How close did you come?
1: Well, we never had the walk, unless I forgot. Maybe I've forgotten it, or I didn't go or something. But um, but that was scary, and it wasn't horrifying. It was just sort of surprising. Why would I do that? And the only answer that comes back is that'll instantly stop this. Um... But there's a paradox in that thought because you're kind of assuming that what you mean by that is once I jump in front of the train or do that or drown myself or whatever, uh, I'll feel better. Because anything but this will feel better. And it's anything but this. I mean, it's a crazy logic. Yeah. Because you're not going to feel better. You, You simply won't feel. There's no there to feel. There's no you to feel. But I promise you that is exactly what many many people can attest to I just want to get this over with oh here's a way and then uh, that, that'll be a relief yeah it'll be a stop
0: <laughs> yeah yeah no i've 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 read that in suicide read, notes I've, I've read people say exactly yeah. that yeah um were you aware of that paradox in that moment
1: yeah I seem to be I thinking, I don't feel bad about this what I feel good about is the chance that i I'll be able to get away from the group and just flip over the rail. And and then the thought never went beyond that until later. And you think, but wait, people get better. They tell me. Um, I might. Uh, that's the maybe the only slight little bit of logic you might be able to apply to it at that point and not do it. There was the suicide, the poor guy who jumped off the... Golden Gate Bridge, and regretted it. Um, before about forty feet above the water, it was clear from a video someone made, and in fact, one of the one person who had that had survived, and said, "I just the rush of this. God, what a mistake I made!" People, have, a friend of mine, was sobered up one early morning by seeing a man jump from the twentieth floor of apartment building in Manhattan. And he said he grabbed at everything on the way down, awnings, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But that's the thing about depression. It leads to death. And that's why it has to be treated.
0: I ended up talking to Dick Cabot longer than was scheduled. He had so many great stories and it was such an honor to hang out with this guy who had been through so much and saw so much in the people he was talking to. But then, it was time to go.
1: I think I'll shut up now. Okay. (laughs) Let me just remind you that leaving a party with Mr. Groucho Marx, the following scene took place. Uh, Let's get out of here. And the hostess comes over to the French doors being used as an escape route and says, well, leaving so soon, Mr. Marx. And Groucho said... I've had a wonderful evening, eh? but this wasn't it.
0: (laughs) The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Our technical director is Johnny Vince Evans. Our executive producer is Kate Moose. Special thanks to Jonathan Blakely. Thanks also to Cynthia Daniels at Monk Music Studio in East Hampton, New York. Our theme song is called Pagliacci, and it was written and performed by our good friend Rhett Miller. Much more about Rhett is available at his website, rhettmiller.com. Confidential Help is available for free at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. That's a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illness. MakeItOK.org has information to check out for yourself or for someone else. Starting a conversation about mental illness can be awkward. Make It OK has tips on what to say and what not to say. And it has stories of hope from people who've been there. Visit MakeItOK.org. You can take the pledge to Make It OK. On the next episode, Andy Richter recalls his onset of depression. It came quite early. I mean, my parents divorced when I was four. And I remember being a child and listening to Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water. uh, And not even fully understanding it, but I would play it over and over and run a slideshow in my head. My dad stayed in Bloomington, and my mom took us to her parents' house in Illinois. And I would run a, a slideshow of, of Bloomington and of our house and of, of uh, you know, like different— Of what had been lost. Yeah, just, yeah and, and just make myself so sad. I'm John Moe. Bye now.
1: Say it ain't so Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know
0: Thanks for Asking is a new podcast that wants to know the honest answers that people really have to that question, how are you? Because we all say fine, even when we're not fine. And we're often not fine. Each week, host Nora McInerney shares a story of someone who's gone through something, someone who's had reason to say that actually they're terrible. Thanks for asking. My stepmom called and she said, Michael's gone, and I was like, what do you mean Michael's gone? Everything was fine. But I just remember that that's what I did, like I danced in my apartment as someone waited to hurt me. I asked the Lord every day to forgive me for wanting something bad to happen, because I, as a Christian, shouldn't want that. But as a human, I do.
1: How come some made some didn't? it hurts? It really does. Is there anything that makes that go away at all? No, ma'am.
0: Not at all. Terrible Thanks For Asking talks about hard stuff, but also about where you can find humor and kindness, because we're complicated. We all contain multitudes, even when it hurts. You can find Terrible Thanks For Asking at ttfa.org,